So we come to Revelation chapter 8. Before we begin, let me just point out to you that I have said on more than a few occasions in the sermons that I've shared with you that one thing we need to keep in mind when we study Scripture, and I'll say this especially as it relates to apocalyptic literature such as Revelation, is that Scripture was not written to you or us, but for us, for you. Not to you, but for you. That's an important distinction, especially in this case. As we see in the first part of this study, we're going to see that there are things taking place here that have symbolic, figurative reference to the historical events that were taking place at the time John wrote these words. They're symbolically discussed. He, he says in Revelation chapter 1, the things that the Lord showed me that are to be signified, that technically in the Greek it means symbolized, these great things that are going to be unfolding. And they're targeted specifically at the people at the time the book was written, which was sometime before A.D. 70. And as I have been arguing, and I think it's fairly clear from Scripture and the historical references this has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the city, the temple there, as a sign of God's judgment. So, in this study, we're going to spend the first few minutes talking about some of the dynamics of these symbolic references and how it applies in that sense. But then, and we come to the part about what it is that's for us, I want to focus on something that we learn here, and that's where the title comes about the prayers of the saints. So, let me begin by saying that a common reaction of people who set out to study this book, is that, you know, they, they get bewildered and confused. They are confounded because they think that maybe this book wasn't meant to be understood by anybody. And even maybe the guy who wrote it was crazy. But to get an idea of the importance of the symbolism of the book, I want you to think about this. Since we began in chapter 1, we have seen the Apostle John, the author, refer to seven stars, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven angels, creatures with seven eyes, seven horns, and now a scroll of seven seals. And when you look at the overall pattern of the book from chapter 4 right to the end in chapter 22, the book neatly divides itself into seven sections. So, Far from being a bunch of meaningless, weird nonsense, Revelation is the result of incredible forethought and writing ability. And I'll say it again, let's be reminded that the book has not so much to do with what people generally call the second coming or the end of time. It has to do with the end of something all right, but it's the end of Old Covenant Israel and the fall of the city of Jerusalem as a sign of God's covenantal judgment against, against them. And if at this point, if there's anybody who's saying, well, what in the world did the Jews do, did the, Is, did the Isra Israelites do that would cause this judgment? Why would you even say such a thing? Well, how about centuries of warning and warning and rebuke against idol worship, and then God sends his own divine son, Messiah Jesus of Nazareth, and what do they do? They kill him. They murder him. And they scream, we will not have this king, man to be king over us. Caesar is our king. We have no king but Caesar. That will bring judgment of the most severe sort. Now, yes, there is strange language here and, and symbols in these chapters. And some people may one, well wonder how any of it is history. 
How can this stuff we're reading be history? And how is it somehow connected to the Roman siege and assault against Jerusalem between A.D. 68 and A.D. 70 and the Jewish wars against Rome? Well, look, let's look at verses 2 through 11. We're focusing on the chapter, but primarily these and a few other verses. John writes, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets who were given to them, or that were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, there are two references there to the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels, who had seven trumpets, prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there, were followed, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell into the third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star was Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. All right, we'll stop there for now. So during the time that this book was written, roughly the generation between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70, the leaders of Israel have been persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. How do you know that, Pastor? Read the book of Acts. Read the Gospel of John. It's all there. And these people have declared themselves to be the enemies of God's new covenant people and therefore the enemies of Yahweh God himself. And so now... God Almighty is going to treat them as his enemies. The only way anyone can deny this or pretend that they don't understand how any of this could be is by an abysmal ignorance of how God has revealed himself in Scripture, especially in the Older Covenant. In verses 3 and 4, the followers of Jesus, the saints of God, they are offering up their prayers and petitions to the Father. Now notice what John sees the angel do in this vision. Listen again to verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes. Notice, fire cast from the earth, onto the earth. Fire is from the altar of God, and it's thrown on the earth. There are Old Testament references for all of this, of course, but before we go there, I want you to remember or know or understand something that Jesus said And I think it's recorded more than once in the Synoptic Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus said, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and I wish wish it was already kindled. There's an an older, probably somewhat corrupt translation or rendering of it where Jesus says, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and I'm guarding it until it blazes. So there's a reference here to Christ's judgment and what he, something he'd already said during his earthly ministry. But you remember our Old Testament reading a few moments ago from Deuteronomy 13. In that reading, 
Moses was instructing the Israelites how they were to destroy a city and its inhabitants that had become apostate or that were trying to lead Israel astray. This would be a city that tries to call, cause Israel to break covenant with her God. Listen to it again. I'm going to read it from a different translation this time. He says, if you hear that one of the towns which Yahweh your God has given you for a home, that there are men, scoundrels of your own stock, he tells them, who have led their fellow citizens astray, saying, let us go and serve other gods, hither known unto, unknown to you. The Lord says to them, it is your duty to look into the matter, to examine it, and inquire most carefully. So there's a judicial process. If it is proved and confirmed that such a hateful thing has taken place among you, then you must put the inhabitants of that town to the sword. You must lay it under the curse of destruction, the town and everything in it. You must pile up all of its earthly goods or loot in the public square and burn the town and all of its loot, offering it all to Yahweh your God. It is to be a ruin for all time. This apostate city, notice the last statement, it is never to be rebuilt. Now, according to God's law, the high priest would take fire from God's altar and use it to set aflame this heap of plunder of the city. So the, soul, the whole of the city's wealth, all of its wealth and substance, would be burned and offered up as a sacrifice to God. Now, here in these verses, Jerusalem, in Revelation 8, Jerusalem is being compared to one of these kind of cities. It's ripe for destruction. So this is one reference of, of two where we see that they have become God's enemies. They have abandoned God. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, in that chapter, there's the remarkable account of the glory and spirit of God actually rising up out of the temple and leaving it for the last time. Now, we may say that the spirit of God did return to the temple. It's not anywhere recorded in the Older Testament because it didn't happen there. But when our Lord Jesus Christ entered the temple during his earthly ministry, that was Israel's last opportunity to receive and be blessed by the presence of their God. And we know what they did. They crucified him. So there are two examples from the Older Testament. Examples of God's judgment against a wicked city. Now verse 5 in Revelation 8 tells us that there would be earthquakes and thunderings and lightnings. Now those things may be purely symbolic references or figurative ways to describe the awful presence of the judgment of God among these people in this time, in the A.D. 68 to 70 time frame. But we know that when God came to the Israelites, figuratively speaking, on Mount Sinai, well, his presence was accompanied by thunderings and lightnings. On the other hand, that's a symbolic side. On the other hand, the eyewitnesses account about the Roman siege against Jerusalem over that time period of 68 to 70, recorded that there were literal fulfillments of these things in the time of the Roman attack. There were earthquakes and, and bad storms. Josephus records this in his histories. Now look at verse 8 of Romans, uh, Revelation 8. Excuse me. Then the second angel sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So like these other verses... This one is full of both literal and symbolic meaning. 
In the Older Testament, Israel was often pictured or compared to or related to a, the strong mountain of God. When God called Israel as a nation to be in covenant with him, he did that at Mount Sinai. So the image of a tall, big mountain has special reference to Israel in the Old Testament. But here, in Revelation 8, all of that is being turned upside down. The mountain, meaning Israel, is being burned with fire and she's being cast into the sea. In the Older Testament, the sea is often used to symbolize the pagan world, the nations of the Gentiles. John is here symbolically shown that Israel will be cast down before the presence of God. Going back again to the historical account of what really happened there, Josephus wrote that when the Romans finally breached the walls of the city, and after killing and rampaging and burning and everything for a while, they, they burned the entire city to the ground. And the Jews who remained there were scattered among the nations of the Gentiles. As for the turning of the sea into blood, well, that too is in keeping with how God is now treating animal, in, excuse me, how God is now treating Israel as his enemy. I mean, think, think about this reference for a moment. Where else in Scripture, and by now you should be in tune to recognize where in the Older Testament, because John is continually drawing our attention back there, where do we read of, of a body of water being turned into blood? Both as a sign of God's wrath and as a means of saving his people. Well, of course, in the book of Exodus. Remember the plagues that God brought against Egypt because Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go and worship the true God? One of those plagues was the turning of the Nile River into blood and the resultant deaths of hundreds of people and animals and fish as a result. So here, Israel is being symbolically put on the same level compared to Egypt. The Lord is bringing the same, or many of the same plagues against Israel as he did against Egypt. One more of the eyewitnesses account records the accuracy of this vision. Because one of the results of the Roman attacks on the city was that the Jews, some of them at least, turned to piracy. See, the Romans <clears throat> had long had to deal with this problem of pirates. You know, that, that problem really doesn't exist for the most part. I, I guess there's still piracy on the high seas on occasion. But this was a serious problem in the ancient world and, say, in the, in the previous two centuries. But the Romans, because of the far-flung nature of their empire, you know, they had... Uh, Colonies in, in Gaul, France, Spain, uh, up into the parts of the area we know today as the Middle East, and down into North Africa. And they had these different colonies because of the mineral deposits and, and the, the material things that they could mine and extract from those places and bring them back to Rome, and people could make money off them. But not only that, the populations of those areas, the Romans taxed them. And so there was all kinds of money that had to be transported. You couldn't do a mobile deposit back in those days. So the Romans had galleys, uh, or excuse me, fleets of galley ships that would transport these goods back to Rome from these far-flung places. And don't think that didn't get the attention of pirates. And as a result of that, because of the piracy, the Romans developed pretty good uh, naval ability to defend themselves against pirates. Well, here in this case... The record indicates that some of the Jews, at least, began to take to the, 
the, the Sea of the Mediterranean, but also in the Sea of Galilee to try to get back some of the things that had been stolen from them, presumably. And the result of that is that there was terrible bloodshed. At one point, Josephus tells us that the Sea of Galilee was choked with dead bodies and blood. Literal fulfillment of what John says here in Revelation 8. Now, let's consider again verses 10 to 11. The angel blows the trumpet, the great star falls from heaven. Uh, the name of the star is Wormwood. How many crazy prophecy books have been written about Wormwood and, and videos and, and end times movies? Wormwood. But John is simply going back to the book of Exodus to show the judgment of God against Israel once again. In the book of Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites, they've left Egypt, they've been made uh, in covenant with Yahweh, but they're wandering in the desert. They need water. And they come to a place called Marah. And they find water. But the water is bitter. It's undrinkable there. And so God tells Moses to cast a certain tree into the water, and it makes the water sweet and drinkable. And once again, now here in Revelation, something in the Older Testament is being turned upside down. Because here the water is drinkable to begin with, but in the vision, in the symbolism, the star falls into the waters and makes them bitter and undrinkable. And that calls to mind, again, one of the plagues and one of the results of God judging Egypt in the book of Exodus. And in Isaiah 14, we read there of God's judgment coming upon the city of Babylon. Now, of course, Babylon historically has been the enemy of Israel. But in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, the judgment comes, guess what, as a great star coming and falling against the city. And so Israel is being compared to and has now become according to John's vision and according to the standpoint of Yahweh, the true God, they have become another Egypt, they've become another Babylon. Verse 11 of John 8, the star is called Wormwood. The Wormwood plant was very common, and for all I know it still is, all over Palestine. And at one time it was thought to have medicinal and healing properties. But another quality of the Wormwood plant is a bitter taste. In the Old Testament, wormwood and bitterness are almost always associated with God's judgment against rebellion. And you can see this in Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 23, in Lamentations 3, Lamentations 13, and excuse me, 19, and in Amos chapter 5. In those books, wormwood is specifically identified with God's anger against Israel for false gods being among them, for their following after false religion. Now, friends, what I have said up to this point, I believe, is the meaning of verses 2 through 11 of Revelation 8. It's strange, it's fantastic, it's awful imagery to our eyes, but it, it, it comes right out of the Old Testament. It has nothing at all to do with atomic bombs or laser beams or some Russia invading Israel or some nonsense about Gog and Magog or any of the other things that dispensationalists have taught us about these things over the years. Nothing to do with that. It has nothing at all to do, for the most part, in terms of literal fulfillment of a future return of Christ in some far-off time as far as these specifically prophesied events. But it did have to do with the future of Israel as a nation in that time period and of the church of Jesus Christ as God's new covenant people. At the time John wrote these words, 
Those things had not yet come to pass. They were soon to come, up, come to pass. How do we know that? Because he says at the very beginning of the book and in the last chapter of the book, these things are about to happen. So to that extent, it was a foretelling of things that were to come. But now, even though these things do not directly concern Christian believers today in terms of future events, specific events, they nonetheless do concern us in terms of what they would teach us about our walk with the Lord. And here I want to come full circle to this issue of this is written for us and the prayers of the saints. If you look again at verses 3 through 5, we have this reference to the incense rising up to God, and it's symbolic of the prayers of the saints rising up to God. So I think, in closing, I want to share with you three primary things that we learn about prayer here. First of all, we're given the great privilege of prayer. That's one thing. Verse 3 in Revelation 8 refers to the prayers of the saints. And maybe here's a good time to point out that the Roman Catholic Church, of course, has profoundly unscriptural and false teaching about this, as if uh, somebody's a saint according to what the church declares. The word saint comes from the word that means sanctification or to be sanctified. So this is not some super class of Christians. These people referred to here are average believers just like you and me. But they are showing us that prayer should occupy a primary place in the life of the believer. You know, one of the best definitions that I've ever come across, and maybe for you too, of prayer is from our own shorter catechism. When the question is asked in question number 98, the, the answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. But then it has these qualifications. This is the valuable part. We can all figure out that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. But it says, for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Those four qualifications are supremely important. In prayer, we come before our creator as sinners before a just and holy God. And we come to him as sons and daughters come to their father. Those believers in these verses, they knew how to pray. And as we are seeing, the results of their prayers are unfolding in every chapter in the book of Revelation. But then secondly, well, we don't only have the privilege of prayer, but secondly, we are promised great assistance in our prayers. Our prayers to the father rise to him in heaven and are made acceptable to him. That's the imagery of the incense rising. The Bible shows us that every believer is promised two great helps so that we may pray correctly to our Father. For one, in Romans chapter 8, all who are in union with Christ are given the intercessory assistance of the Holy Spirit. But then secondly, for another, we have the direct intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the Spirit and the Son pray for us that our prayers may be made more acceptable to the Father. And then finally, we are guaranteed great answers to our prayers. Yes, I said guaranteed. That may be risky, but, but I don't use the term unadvisedly. Because the shorter catechism teaches us, and we should be reminded again, that our prayers must be motivated by a desire for God's own glory. And they must be agreeable to His will. That's the guarantee. The persecuted saints in these chapters of Revelation, they were motivated in precisely that way. They brought their prayers for deliverance before him. But their prayers were motivated by a desire to see God glorified. And that glory, make no mistake, understand, 
That glory was to be accomplished in the absolute vanquishing of the enemies of Christ and his church. Now, at this point, as I wind this up, it may have crossed your mind, whether you're sitting here this morning or listening by means of audio or at some point in your life, that your prayers could not possibly be used by the Lord in so powerful a way. If we are praying according to the standard outlined for us biblically by the catechism, we shouldn't think that way. But, I mean, it's a natural human tendency, I guess. So let me tell you about another man who, who thought that way, at least for a time. <clears throat> His name was George McCluskey. Uh, he, he lived back in the late 1800s. After he married and started a family, he decided to invest one hour each day in praying for his children. He prayed that they would all become followers of Christ. Well, eventually, Mr. McCluskey expanded his prayer list to include his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So he prayed for the salvation of the next three generations of his family, of his descendants. As the years went by... By God's grace, he lived to see two of his daughters come to faith in Christ. So that means not all of them during his lifetime, but two of his daughters in his lifetime became Christians. Now, those two daughters married men who also were Christians, and those two men and their, their wives, he, he, the men became pastors. And between those two families, there were four girls and one boy born. And each of those girls became Christians. And they all four married men who became pastors. The boy, in this case, became a missionary. Now, in terms of that part of the generation of Mr. McCluskey, the first two children born into that generation of McCluskey's were both boys. Stay with me. I know it's kind of hard. I don't have a visual image of a family tree here. But now we're talking about the third generation of McCluskey's. Two boys born. One of those boys, uh, both the boys finished high school, and they both enrolled at the same college, and they were roommates. During their sophomore year, one of the two boys, cousins, sensed the Lord calling him into full-time pastoral ministry. But that other boy, the other cousin, he did not sense that call. Now, just for a moment, think about that. Up to this point, this boy who says, no, I don't, I don't hear a call to ministry, he must have been under some kind of pressure to become a pastor, right, with all the stuff that he got on before with the men and his family. But he chose otherwise, and he went on to pursue his interest in, of all things, psychology. But you know something? The Lord used him in that way, too, because he went on to earn a Ph.D. in psychology, and, more importantly, he began writing books on a Christian foundation for parents, how to raise their children. Those books, most of them became bestsellers. This man later went on to start a radio program that at one time was heard on over a thousand stations, radio stations every day. I think most of you have heard of this man. His name is Dr. James Dobson. Let that sink in, my friends. His great-grandfather began praying, and through the prayers of George McCluskey, the Lord was pleased to reach millions of people with the truths of Scripture and the word of His sovereign grace. The prayers of the saints are effectual, my friends. And let us look to God in prayer right now. Amen. Let us pray.